Qualcomm isn't a household name like Google or Samsung, but its processor serve as the brains for many of their biggest products. So what does 2021 look like for high-end smartphones? I'm Roger Chang, and this is your Daily Charge. With me to help answer this question is Alex Katuzian, Head of Mobile, Compute, and Infrastructure at Qualcomm. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for having me today. So you just wrapped up the Qualcomm Snapdragon Summit, where you unveiled the new Snapdragon 888 chip. Uh, this is the processor that will power many of next year's high-end phones. And I know you can't confirm it, but obviously we'll likely see this in the next Galaxy S device, as well as a number of high-end phones in the next few months. Before we, we get into the details of the, the 888, uh, can you just give my listeners a quick refresher on Qualcomm and the Snapdragon platform as a whole? Oh, yeah, of course. So the Tech Summit is um, is our platform every year to announce our latest and greatest uh, premium tier technologies and premium tier product. And um, that kind of dictates and sets the tone for almost all the other businesses that, that we go through. Uh, obviously, uh, anything that we develop and we productize on the premium tier waterfalls itself into other tiers on the handset side. So when we go into a high-end uh, high solution uh, or a mid-tier solution, uh, a lot of the technology that's developed for the premium tier kind of waterfalls itself over time into those tiers. And we reuse a lot of that technology. A lot of times we reuse the software as is into high-tier devices or mid-tier devices. And we try to have that ease of use for our OEMs. But then beyond that, um, all of these all of these technologies really hit multiple different businesses. So for example, uh, XR, our XR-based solutions, whether it's uh, VR or AR, it, it probably uses 90% of the technologies that we develop on premium tier. Um, PCs, 90% of the technologies used on the premium tier. Um, you know, even AI, our edge cloud AI solutions, all of it stems from the premium tier AI engine that we develop. Uh, mobile broadband, all the modem capabilities in mobile broadband stem from the modems that we do for premium tier. Automotive use cases, IoT use cases, wearables use cases, all stem from these technologies. So it is the most important product that we have. It's the most important set of technologies that we produce. And we'd like to showcase that because that also sets the tone for the Android world to be competitive against other platforms. Gotcha. And the, the features and the capabilities of this 885 5G mobile platform really sort of gives folks uh, cues as to what some of these other products and other platforms are going to look like. Let's talk about that specifically. The 888, uh, what, what exactly is new about it? What is special about it? Uh, why should uh, our listeners care? So um, there's, there's probably like four or five pillars that we really concentrate on in, uh, for the premium tier. Um, so connectivity and low power compute um, and our software really determines what we do in the premium tier. So, for example, we have our third generation 5G modem embedded into the 888. And um, that, is, that is a uh, uh, carry aggregation modem that aggregates frequencies between millimeter wave and sub six where it aggregates frequencies from the TDD bands and the FDD bands in sub six together, that gives the ability for carriers to have the widest bandwidth available to them if they have multiple frequencies that are associated that they have bought um, through the FCCs. 
And so what happens is uh, they want to aggregate all these bands to give the widest bandwidth available to their consumers. We do that for them with this uh, with this 5G modem. I'd like to kind of drill down on that because obviously we've gotten a lot of uh, high profile 5G products that have launched recently. Uh, the iPhone, Samsung's Galaxy Note 20. Uh, you know, this year, I would say the the evolution from last year, last year was sort of like the first year of 5G. It was a little bit dicey. If you bought a phone, you weren't sure what network you could you could actually use it on. This year is a lot simpler. Uh, for 2021, what what is the sort of the 5G capability? Is it just, is it speed? Is it latency? What exactly are some of the benefits we're going to see with this new platform? Yeah, very good question. So, um, the 5G era, uh, the, the reason why it's different than all the other Gs is that the end user equipment, like phones and mobile broadband products, were actually available before the full network solutions were ready to roll out. And so what you saw in 2019 is when you have the first 5G phones coming out, all of the networks weren't quite ready with their deployments. They hadn't gone to multiple major cities. Um, the infrastructure equipment that was that was deployed needed to get tested slightly more. And so over parts of 2019 and all of 2020, we spent a huge amount of time uh, testing with infrastructure partners, testing with carrier partners. The carriers deployed many, many more different networks throughout their cities. The deployment in China is, is amazing. I think they have 500,000 base stations by the end of this year deployed, and they're going to go to a million of them in 2021. That is huge coverage in that geographical area. Um, there's also multiple percentages higher in the U.S., in, in, in Europe, in Korea. Korea did a really fantastic job at deploying their networks and their end user equipment. Plus, they thought through many different services um, like video, video download capabilities, uh, gaming capabilities, uh, you know, entertainment-based solutions that they provided their, their customers with their 5G rollout. Um, so over 2020 and part of 2019, we went through a lot of testing, not only with the, with the uh, equipment manufacturers and the carriers, but with service providers, with app, app developers, independent software vendors, all of which had the opportunity to provide those products with 5G in mind. That's the good part about the end user equipment being done faster than the network rollout, because they had actual products in hand. And they could um, connect and try to figure out, what can I do now? Um, Latency-wise, bandwidth-wise, what can I do to provide the best user experience through 5G? And um, what your question was, you know, what do we expect in 2021? The biggest difference in 5G versus 4G is sustained bandwidth capability. So once we hit like a gigabit or two gigabits per second, we can sustain that bandwidth for a long period of time versus peaks and valleys when you had previous Gs. And of course, latency is, is super important, um, especially like I'll give you examples, um, like real-time social networking requires latency. Um, multiplayer gaming requires latency and bandwidth. Um, you know, all of the video uploads and downloads requires that sustained bandwidth capability. Um, you know, so, 
So a lot of applications are coming and being developed with 5G in mind, but the biggest difference is that sustainability and the latency that's involved. You know, I've been saying for a little while with 5G, particularly this year, I think for a lot of folks who turned on a 5G device, for a vast majority of these uh, these folks, they're they're tapping into the nationwide, the low band 5G network. And as I've, as I've tested recently with a, a new iPhone that I just bought, the speeds are not impressive. They're, you know, marginally better. I would say the, the T-Mobile 5G network I, I tapped in to got a top speed of about 56 megabits per second versus the 50 megabits per second on their 4G network, which speaks to the quality of the 4G technology. But also, this wasn't like the jump from 3G to 4G. And I'm curious, uh, as we go into 2021, if there is something that you know this processor or this platform can enable with some of the low band uh, frequencies that would actually it will, that will actually see more significant speed bumps because you talk about one gig and two gig, and really that's only going to be achievable with millimeter wave spectrum. And most people, especially in this lockdown environment, don't have access to those networks. So, barring that, the, the sort of mid band and the and really the low band, which is what most people are going to get, if if there's sort of a any kind of additional benefit, speed boost or latency boost from the 888? Yeah, um, I think what you're going to see is so many different carriers have, um, you know, uh, spread out frequencies that they've acquired. And as you can aggregate those frequencies, you would see a lot of difference. And that bandwidth is going to make that difference. So that's why um, the carry aggregation capabilities of the 888 and the carry aggregation capabilities of, the, of our latest modem uh, the X60 um, is is critical because that'll give the ability to these carriers to put together multiple different frequencies and aggregate them for a larger bandwidth. Um, and and so so you're going to see some of that. And we're also going to aggregate um, millimeter wave and sub six. So so you'll have access to that as well. And even though even though. Um, you know, you may have more sub six deployments than millimeter wave. And it's really because the millimeter wave deployments are targeting, they're targeting dense urban areas first. And then they'll go to, for example, enterprises to give them the bandwidth necessary for their applications. And then you have these, all these different municipalities across the country that Sometimes agree to put up a tower. Sometimes they don't agree to put up tower. That takes time by itself. And, and, and by the way, um, a, um, a, a, if I could say anything good about COVID, it reduced the traffic um, and number of people outdoors by a lot so that the deployment of these towers became faster and faster by the Verizon workers and AT&T workers and others. They could actually go in into areas and set up the networks as soon as they got permission and start testing them and, and move, move faster and faster. So you're going to see a lot more deployments coming out for a millimeter wave in, in multiple other cities and try to blanket more of the U.S. And obviously, some of the carriers are going to concentrate more on the dense urban and use the wider area networks with sub-6. And some of them are going to concentrate to get as much bandwidth across all of the regions as they can. So I think the aggregation is going to help a lot. Uh, there's multiple different features that that um, will increase bandwidth and reduce latency that we're deploying into the X60 and and uh, 
even the next generation after that. Um, and so I, I just see it improving over the years. And it's just like anything, any new rollout. This is so complex and so massive. It just takes a little time for everything to work itself through. That's why G's last about 10 years. Right. It's, it is easy to kind of assume or want or desire that, that huge speed boost right away, but I get it takes time. Uh, you know, the, the, I guess the contrast for me is because I remember the jump from 3G to 4G, and it was a pretty dramatic jump from the get-go. Uh, and with 5G, especially a lot of the hype that's gone into it, you know, it, it really is depending on where you live and the, the type of 5G spectrum you get access to, the experience varies so greatly between one person to another, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. And it's not ubiquitous yet. And, you know, uh, uh, once once the networks start to roll and you have um, uh, multiple millions of handsets on, the, on that network, you're going to start to get much more results. The data coming through is going to allow you to sift through where the bad areas are, what type of improvements you need. And, and I, I think I remember um, people, at, you would ask us, why is your modem separate? Why didn't you put it into the, into the same SOC like before when we had it on the 865? And my answer was always, hey, you don't know how you're going to optimize the technology unless you start doing more and more trials. And as, as time goes by, our architecture gets better and this thing gets smaller and now we have it integrated, but we have methodologies on top of that that allows to have, allow us to have better user experience, uh, you know, the, the data throughput to sustain better, figure out ways to increase uh, um, the data throughput, figure out aggregation uh, methodologies to help all the different fragmented frequencies. All of those things come into play as uh, experiments and, and users start to climb into the network. Understandably so that in the beginning, it's more difficult, but I think in the next 12 to 18 months, you're gonna see also big improvements. That's a great transition. You talked about sort of discrete versus an integrated system. Uh, talk about a little bit of the pros and cons of that, especially for our listeners who don't quite understand, who may not understand that the nuances of that and, and why you opted to go with sort of the discrete system. Okay, so originally we opted to go with a discrete system because uh, when a standard for a G starts to come out on the modem, you don't know what features and functions in particular are going to be the most amount used or how can you reduce your design in such a way that would make the size of that modem smaller within an integrated solution? So what you do is you implement the modem the best you can, get it into the field, start testing it, making sure it's robust enough in terms of performance, uh, make sure, making sure that the power dissipation is good enough for, for people not to be discouraged by using 5G. You start getting it out into the market and experimenting with it that way. And then what happens is over a course of time, uh, you will see uh, all of the great advantages and features and functions that are most used and how you can reduce that to a point where it's now affordable to put into an integrated SOC. Originally, when we had a two-chip solution, if I put that whole modem inside the application processor, the die area would get so big that my packaging costs would go up and as the die as the die gets bigger in that wafer, the wafer yields start to go down because there are certain defects in the process that may land right in the middle of the die, and the die will become useless. Okay, and and so it's better to have two smaller die, and have better yields, and have better costs, and better packaging 
costs associated with it so we can translate that to our customers in the ecosystem versus just putting it in for the sake of integration. But once the functionality starts to shrink and we can fit it in onto one die, just like we did on the 888, then it becomes very feasible and the yields of the process technology you're going in are, are better and better and you can figure out how to make it more cost effective. And so that's why we went from, we did a two-step solution. Last year we had two chips, this year we have one chip. And ultimately that, that hopefully leads to a more power efficient chip overall, right? Correct, correct. And, and sometimes when you have a very big die, you actually may spend more power on a big die versus two smaller die. So we have to balance that out our, our, ourselves as well. That concludes part one of our three-part conversation with Alex Katuzian at Qualcomm. Come back tomorrow where we will talk more about the impact of artificial intelligence on mobile computing and photography tech. You can check out our Qualcomm coverage on CNET.com. If you have any questions, hit us up on Twitter at The Daily Charge, or send me a text message by signing up at 646-461-4291. Also, please subscribe and rate the show. It really helps us out. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.